Hello and welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Brooke Patterson and I'm a physiotherapist and research fellow at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Today I'm joined by Professor Grant Iverson and Professor Robert Cantu. This is a podcast as part of a BJSM mini-series on concussion following the release of the new international consensus statement. If you haven't listened to our first episode with the consensus co-chairs, Catherine Snyder and John Patricios, then I encourage you to go back and have a listen as they give a comprehensive overview of the whole consensus and the different topics. But today we will be talking about later in life health risks associated with sport-related concussion and repetitive impacts and the systematic review that was published as a part of the consensus in BJSM. So it really is about helping you as a clinician understand the current evidence about the later in life health risks associated with concussion and participation in contact and collision sports. So you can be informed to have these conversations with athletes, coaches, parents and sporting organisations that you may deal with on a regular basis. So both Grant and Robert are specialists in sports-related concussion, which massively undersells the international standing in this area, and they wear many hats. So I might welcome you both and ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Well, hi there. My name is Grant Iverson, and my specialty is neuropsychology. I serve as the director of the Mass General for Children Sports Concussion Program, and I also run a concussion research program at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston. I am a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School, and I also work in a program for active duty military service members and veterans. Uh, where we provide healthcare services for them in the space of mental health, uh, substance misuse, and traumatic brain injury. And I was the uh, first author on this systematic review that we did as part of the process for the concussion and sport group uh, to uh, review the literature and develop um, a consensus statement. Thanks, Grant. Grant, welcome, Bob. Yeah, I'm Bob Cantu. Uh, my background is that of a neurosurgeon who's for a long time, over 50 years, been treating head injuries and been very interested for many years, especially with regard to concussion over the last 40 and with regard to CTE in the last 20, uh, trying to make sports safer uh, in every way that we can. Um, like Grant, I wear a number of hats. One of them um, is the uh, medical director uh, for the Robert C. Cantu Concussion Center in Emerson Hospital in Concord, Massachusetts. We're also chief of the neurosurgical service there. And in Boston, I uh, am a clinical professor of neurology and neurosurgery at Boston University, where we also in 2008 founded uh, the Center for the Study of Traumatic Encephalopathy uh, at BU. Um, other hats we wear as a senior advisor to the National Football League, um, especially their head, neck, and spine committee, where I do most of my work. Uh, we're a vice president of the National Organizing Committee on Standards for Athletic Equipment, NOXI, uh, and chair of their scientific advisory committee and a co-founder and medical director of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, 
um, a not-for-profit uh, directed toward concussion awareness and education. Um, some of the hats that we wear. Uh, for a long time, we've been um, involved with concussion research um, and my involvement with a concussion sport group goes back to 2001 at the first meeting in Vienna, and we've been a participant um, in all the meetings since 2001, 4, 8, 12, 16, and now 22. And I must say that it was a uh, pleasure to work with Grant. Um, he definitely is the lead author. He definitely uh, it takes the, should take the greatest amount of responsibility and credit for the wonderful effort that went into this systematic review, and I'm happy to have been a part of it. Thanks, Bob, and it's a huge amount of work, and so congratulations to you both and the team on getting this done. And I do believe, Grant, this is, I can't believe it, but this is your first podcast ever, so we're very honoured to have you here on the BJSM talking to us. And there is a lot of concern in the general public um, amongst clinicians about the possible problems later in life, um, such as cognitive impairments, mental health problems and neurological diseases in former athletes. So, um, Grant, you're going to start by just telling us a little bit about what the review aimed to do and the main findings. Sure. Um for a little background context, when we think about later in life brain health, we think about things like uh, the development of psychiatric conditions such as depression or anxiety or the evolution of suicidality. We think about the development of neurological conditions such as dementia, Parkinson's disease, um, or neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease or um, ALS. And we also think more broadly in not just diagnoses, but functioning. So another way you could think about later in life health is what is the state of your cognitive functioning? Whether or not you meet criteria for dementia might be one thing, but you might have substantially diminished cognitive functioning, maybe not to the point of dementia, um, but to the point of what we might call mild cognitive impairment or even a, a lesser version of that. And other topics of interest in later in life brain health have to do with things you might see on imaging. So on experimental neuroimaging, changes in brain physiology, changes in brain structure, either microstructure or macrostructure, or uh, changes in, um, in brain neurochemistry. And then, of course, another topic later in life brain health is what you might see in brain tissue after a person dies, and you examine brain tissue um, under a microscope and look for changes that you can only detect at that point. So we were interested in all of that, um, but in particular, we wanted to focus this review on, on a particular segment of the literature that was designed to evaluate risk. And what we mean by that is, if you have exposure to something early in life, can does that confer risk for something later in life? And there's, all, there's certain types of studies in epidemiology that allow you to draw inferences regarding risk. And those are case control studies and cohort studies. Um, Well-established in medical research that these are studies that are designed to 
try to identify and quantify risk uh, from exposure to an outcome. So that was our focus uh, for this particular systematic review. And and that's really important because um, that means any study that does not meet that methodology was not included. Um, So our inclusion criteria did not include studies, for example, that compared group A to group B on neuroimaging or group A to group B on cognitive testing or group A to group B on mental health because those are cross-sectional studies, um, not more longitudinal cohort studies. Um, So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And so in regards to the world literature, we we reviewed over 7,000 articles, we screened them. We identified 75 that we thought might fit the methodology. Uh, After carefully going through those 75, we were ultimately able to identify only 28 studies, 28 studies in the world literature that met our criteria for inclusion. And so uh, you can imagine because there have been multiple published systematic reviews relating to later in life brain health that include lots of articles that didn't make it into our systematic review because they were not epidemiologically uh, risk studies. Um, Of those 28 studies that we identified, 10 were with former amateur athletes and 18 were with former professional athletes. Um, And the literature uh, is pretty dominated by American style football. So both in terms of the amateur studies and the professional studies, a pretty substantial percentage of of the studies included in our systematic review were with former American football players. Um, The second group that was studied the most were um, European former elite soccer players, elite amateur or professional soccer players, primarily from two countries, Scotland and Italy. Another characteristic of the studies we identified is we set out to study the possible long-term effects of concussions as a big part of what we were trying to do. But the studies that we identified that were included didn't actually look at concussions. Um, Those, they were not able to quantify those in the studies. So instead, the exposure variable was participation in sports, not whether a person was injured or not with a a medically diagnosed concussion. I, I said, that's an important caveat to understanding this literature is a lot of times people think, oh, you're studying the long-term effects of concussions in this systematic review. Actually, no, we're, it's the long-term effects of being a participant. No, well, it's the, the possible long-term effects of being a participant in these sports. Thanks, Grant. That's some fantastic detail there in terms of the definitions and methodology. What were some of the key findings from the review? The amateur studies in general, like one general conclusion from the review is the the studies of former amateur athletes all had essentially negative findings, meaning that there was not an association between participation in amateur sports 
and worse later in life brain health broadly defined. So that could be something like risk for depression, risk for um, anxiety, risk for suicidality, or risk for neurological diseases. The studies that we reviewed with amateurs did not find an association between playing contact and collision sports and those particular risks. In contrast, the studies, not all of them, but several of the studies that we reviewed with former professional athletes, both American football players and professional soccer players, did find an association between participation in those sports and some later in life neurological diseases like dementia broadly defined, uh, Parkinson's disease, for example, and ALS. Thanks, Grant. That gives a really good high-level overview of the results. I'm keen to dig into some of those professional athlete studies. And I know the exposure variable was participation in the sport. I'm assuming you also looked at number if the, the studies that also recorded concussions. And was there any relationship there with severity or, or number of concussions? Um, there are studies with former NFL players showing that some of them have uh, depression currently in their life, and there's an association with the number of concussions that they had during their playing years. That is, there is a sort of a basic association between having a greater number of concussions during your career and an increased risk for depression. Um, there is not uh, an association in the studies that we reviewed showing an increased risk for suicide as a manner of death in former football players, however. Now, we also did not find um, an association between playing professional soccer um, and suicide as a manner of death. In regards to neurological diseases, specific neurological diseases, there have been several studies with former professional American-style football players that have illustrated that they are at increased risk for certain diseases, well, or conditions, dementia, for example, ALS, um, and that has been uh, illustrated both in former American-style football players and former professional soccer players in some Scottish studies. I guess one thing that's important to say about those studies is that the associations can be considered um, in statistics and epidemiology to be basic associations. So you're saying there's an association between A and B, but that association does not take into account other factors and variables that we know might be important. Um, that might influence that association. We might call those confounding factors or moderating or mediating factors. A lot of the studies, the way they've been designed, do not allow you to take into account other factors. You can't take into account in most of these studies, for example, genetics. You can't take into account things like social determinants of health or cardiovascular disease or a broad range of factors that are known to be associated with brain health later in life. 
um, could not be statistically modeled or adjusted for in the studies that were included in our systematic review. Now, Bob, really keen to hear from you. You've got many years of experience of seeing a lot of these athletes later in life. Anything in terms of the main findings of the methodology that you wanted to add? I think it's important to understand that the results of the systematic review are really a series of suggestions. They're not a series of statements that are definitely certain. And they are based on 28 cases uh, in the world's literature. And a number of those cases were uh, autopsy studies, which have some concerns about accuracy of autopsy results. I'm not saying they did have inaccuracy. I'm just saying that type of study is not necessarily the best. And other studies were um, review studies uh, where surveys were sent out to people and survey studies have uh, a certain amount of, of concern as well. So the results that were found uh, were what they are and they're, and they're accurately reported by Grant. Um, but there are hundreds of other studies that did not meet this inclusion criteria of being a cohort study or a case controlled study um, which if they had been used, the findings could be very different and indeed are different. For instance, in these 28 studies, um, of which I think eight of them were in uh, amateurs, um, those amateur athletes didn't show increased suicidality uh, later in life, didn't show increased depression later in life. Um, there are other studies that have um, that didn't meet the inclusion criteria because they weren't cohort studies that had they been used um, indeed could have different findings. And also very importantly, as, as Grant said, one of the biggest concerns for later life um, risk in people that are playing contact collision sports and are taking repetitive trauma to the head because there's a significant body of literature that says taking this repetitive trauma to the head uh, produces uh, axonal changes, axonal injury in some cases, um, produces breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, other vascular changes, and inflammatory uh, changes. And then in a smaller percentage of people, perhaps leads to CTE, or at least is associated with CTE. Well, all of these cases of CTE, of which there are now many hundreds in the world's literature, over 600, as a matter of fact, uh, over 90% of which uh, have had repetitive head trauma identified in association with it, uh, were excluded from the systematic review uh, per se. But are, there is, a, I think, a very meaningful portion um, in that paper that does talk about uh, CTE uh, but it is not part of the systematic review. So I think it's important to understand, yes, these are findings. Yes, um, they are conclusions that are suggestive from what these papers said. But there's a, it's a pretty small number of papers compared to what's out there in the world's literature. And not everybody feels as strongly um, as to say that only um, cohort and case control studies should be looked at 
when we're talking about uh, risk association. Yes, they are the the A level uh, for that uh, 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 determination of risk, but they're not the only way to look at it. Thank you, Bob. And it's yeah, good to get that snapshot of, of the bigger picture and where this review sits. And they're obviously very complex outcomes of mental health and the conditions you mentioned that we're talking about to be able to study over time. So it's it's a challenging area. I would just like to echo and reinforce one of the very important points that Dr. Cantu just made, and that is that our systematic review uh, was very focused methodologically. And therefore, there is a very large literature using different research designs um, that were not included. And in fact, in the last few years, there have been entire systematic reviews published on these uh, other topic areas. They're still related to later in life brain health, but for example, there's a whole systematic review on neuroimaging um, and, and brain health in former athletes. There's a whole systematic review on neuropsychological testing and cognitive test results and former athletes. There's a whole systematic review on uh, post-mortem findings in former athletes. And those particular literatures um, were not included in our review. And it's essential that when you're reviewing our paper, that you understand that and, and situate our findings in the context of the broader literature. There's the consensus paper, and then there are 10 systematic reviews. One of the systematic reviews um, essentially is on when to retire after concussion. That systematic review did not use the same inclusion criteria that we use. They did not subject, they did not limit themselves to just cohort studies uh, and or case control studies. So even within the systematic reviews here, one systematic review uses a certain very narrow focus Another systematic review out of the 10 uses a different focus. My next question to you both is if you had endless money, time, and power, what research would you conduct? Back in uh, 2012, we wrote a book for Houghton Mifflin called Concussions in Our Kids, which was really a primer on concussions for parents to understand better and play a role. Um, In that book, we made it pretty clear that there was a section on chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but that really we needed longitudinal studies if we're really going to um, best understand the risk and best understand um, the degree or or level of causation as opposed to just um, high association. And so I called for, in that book, longitudinal studies to be done. But you have to understand, if you're going to be dealing with something that is going to be only um, able to be diagnosed when somebody's dead, and you're going to want to be looking at somebody starting at a very early age and then going through their school years and then going through their adult years, you're, you're really envisioning a 60, 70 or longer year study 
Um, and it's just prohibitive to think you're going to fund such a study and never get it done. So um, even though, you know, we talked about it and even we realize that's just not practical. That having been said, I think we do need to do the very best we can to do longitudinal studies whenever possible. And we can do better uh, with our um, studies, I think, our um, cohort studies don't necessarily have to be that long. Um, I think we also need to, um, for sure, um, be cognizant of the fact that there are multiple um, factors that can lead to clinical symptoms. Um, multiple things can cause cognitive impairment. Multiple things can cause depression or anxiety. Um, and most of the studies that have been done to date are rather tunnel vision on um, not taking in as many of those other cofactors as, uh, as you could. There was a study some years ago with regard to dementia, the Lancet study, and they identified nine different things that uh, all were risk factors for dementia, including repeated traumatic brain injury, but also vascular disease and cardiovascular disease and hypertension, um, even such things as poor nutrition or um, um, people that come from environments that might have environmental issues that could contribute uh, to their overall health. Um, we need in, in the future studies to be broader with our vision of the comorbid condition so that we can better focus in on what's most important. Well, I agree with what Bob just said, is we want to identify and leverage uh, longitudinal studies or longitudinal designs that are currently available. The best places to do this kind of work are countries that have um, national healthcare systems and national medical record systems that go back a long way. Because for those in those countries and those settings, you can design essentially a good case control or cohort study and control for more variables and look for these associations and then try to quantify risk. And you can do that now. You can literally do that in 2024. That study could be started and finished as opposed to designing a longitudinal study now and waiting decades for the results. Um, that won't take endless money or endless resources. That's very doable. Now, there will be fundamental limitations without question, but it will at least move the field a little bit forward in a systematic way. All right. What are you like if a clinician is going to listen to this? What's the key thing you want them to, to walk away with? The key thing that I would like clinicians to walk away with um, is that it's not a great thing to get hit in the head. And when it can be avoided, uh, avoid it. And when it can't be avoided, um, wear appropriate protection if your sport allows you. Um, and, I'm, and I'm very serious with regard to that. Um, and for the sporting organizations, I think they need to think seriously about eliminating unnecessary head trauma by 
practicing sports differently uh, and a certain number of rule changes, which might uh, eliminate the head as a purposeful target uh, for um, direct hits. Not that it won't happen um, incidentally anyway, um, but at least think about it. Um, and I know that a number of uh, sporting organizations are doing that. So, Bob, in your clinical experience, I know this wasn't the purpose of the review, but if you have a, an athlete come to you later in life and they're having some of these health problems, what's your approach with them? It's a great question. And I, and I think the most important thing is athletes who are having cognitive issues or behavior dysregulation issues, short fuse flying off the handle, or depression, anxiety, panic attacks, um, which may or may not be related to their sporting activity. The important thing is that they should come to a healthcare provider that can try to help them with these issues. Now, if they're an athlete, it helps that they come to someone with a background of dealing with athletes with these kinds of issues, because there are treatments that can help these individuals. Um, cognitive problems can be uh, treated with cognitive therapy, balance issues with vestibular therapy. Um, there are therapies for ocular issues. There are therapies um, for emotional issues as well. And then on top of that, there is a pharmacopoeia of medicines that can be used if the therapists uh, are not successful. Um, people, most importantly, uh, need to seek out this help, especially if there's any suicidal ideation. Uh, it's just tragic beyond belief that individuals um, may not get the necessary help they need. So I would definitely plead for athletes that are having issues to seek out a healthcare provider with a background uh, in the areas where they're having difficulties. Therapies are available. Medications are available. They can be helped. Thank you, Bob. I think that's a great way to finish the podcast. And thank you both again for summarising this very important topic. For the listeners, don't forget to go and check out the other podcasts related to the concussion consensus. And we hope you have a physically active day. Bye.